in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I am your host, Jonathan Strickland, and we pick up in the middle of a conversation that I was having with Shannon Morse. You heard the previous episode last week. If you haven't, go back, listen to that. It's all about how Hollywood is really bad at portraying hackers and hacker culture in a realistic way. And today we're going to talk more about some of the embarrassing examples out there in entertainment, as well as some of the really good ones. And uh, we're going to start off with a conversation about a pair of movies that not only did a disservice to hackers, but also virtual reality. We join the conversation already in progress. Lawnmower Man and Lawnmower Man 2, uh, inspired by the work of Stephen King. So these movies are, are terrible. It could be a lot of fun to watch with a group of people who just want to see, like, a really bad movie and make fun of it, you know, MST3K style. Uh, I included a couple of clips and I showed them to Shannon. One of them was uh, a, a demonstration that hacking a, a system in this world isn't just graphical but immersive. Uh, so you're, you're wearing like a hat, uh, a head mounted display and, and you're wearing gloves that allow you to, uh, interact with the virtual world. And so they're showing a character getting backdoor access to a system by slapping at hexagons inside this virtual space. So these hexagons are popping up in front of him and he's slapping at them and eventually gets, you know, uh, access granted. Mostly it's getting access denied, but eventually access granted pops up. And it looks like the only thing that he did differently was just that he hit it a little faster that time. So in other words, <laughs> it'd be equivalent to that NCIS scene we talked about earlier where if you just type fast enough, you either hack in or you prevent a hack from happening. Uh, obviously, this is not at all remotely realistic. But it, it is one of those where you, you look at and you, you're, you could tell the screenwriter was saying, well, I want to show that this character who has, has found that he's very powerful in the virtual space can access a system. How can I do that in a way that's not just, you know, it, it's over in a blink of an eye and there's no way to, to show it visually. So they created this sort of 3D, Display. This is a, one of those things we see in a lot of Hollywood movies where they try and visualize the uh, navigating a secure system as like going through a maze. It happens a ton. And again, actually going through that maze of information that's located on a network is actually quite boring looking on camera. So they they created this uh, albeit terrible virtual reality scene <laughs> to to actually give some kind of uh, uh, implementation, some kind of visual implementation to the people that are watching this movie. And it's it's pretty terrible. Yeah. It's definitely not how gaining access to a network would work. Uh, but I thought it was hilarious. Yeah, Lawnmower Man 2 also has a scene that's similar to that. Uh, the characters are looking at what is just a, a, an equation on a computer screen. Um, so they're looking at this equation and trying to figure out how to get uh, uh, access. And one of the characters says that she can't get past the memory lock to access the chain. So the smarmy computer expert who's next to her says, well, all you have to do is just enhance the memory index. 
And <laughs> which already none of that makes any real sense. It's kind of like Star Trek techno babble where they talk about reversing the polarity. It really, <laughs> it's just, it's just there to say something technical is happening, and you don't need to understand what it is. It's kind of exactly. shorthand. <laughs> yeah. So then a little yellow ball appears uh, on the screen, and the uh, the equation they're looking at it starts to uh, rotate. Uh, and starts to turn on its side and become a three-dimensional maze again. So we get another example of accessing a system involves navigating through a, an actual three-dimensional maze. Uh, he uses gesture controls to move this little yellow ball around uh, until finally getting to where the the data is. The whole time, he's just using meaningless <laughs> computer jargon Incorrectly. And then at the very end, the, the cherry on top of the Sunday is that he says, ta-da. <laughs> so, uh, if you really want a good time, watch the hacking scene from Lawnmower Man 2. Uh, yeah, bo- so both of those obviously are, are in that same category of trying to visualize what this, this, uh, process would be like in a way that is interesting. I said that the, the worst a movie can do is not only be incorrect, but also fail to be entertaining. <laughs> and then I would yes. argue both of these fall into that category. I feel like if hacking was as entertaining as it is in Lawnmower Man, I would have gotten gotten into it at a much, much younger age. However, yeah. it's not. <laughs> I uh, I remember Lawnmower Man's one of the movies I would often cite as being a real reason why virtual reality died in the mid-90s. Oh, um, so sad. Yeah, because the stuff that was around in the mid-90s was very, very primitive, right? You had like Dactyl Nightmare, these these games that were just polygons and they were very primitive. Uh, the gameplay yes. was limited. The headsets you wore had to be supported on cables because they were so heavy they would really hurt your neck otherwise. Uh, and so when people saw what the actual state of the art of virtual reality was at the time compared to what they were seeing in films, that that gap ended up making people say, well, this is this isn't good at all. I don't see any reason in in putting any money toward this. And virtual reality died for about 10 years. And now we're starting to see it get back into the um, consumer space with the success of Oculus Rift and HTC Vive, assuming you can get your hands on one. Uh, we're starting to see it come back. But it took a, almost 20 years for it to recover. So uh, thanks, Lawnmower Man. <laughs> Not only were you a bad movie, but you killed VR. <laughs> it's all your fault. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm not bitter or anything. Um, there's a movie that we have to mention. Everyone that I, I, when I posted on Twitter that I was going to do this, I had a lot of people say the entire movie of Hackers should be uh, considered as part of this as a bad hacking scene. And Hackers is a great example. Uh, it's another one of those where... It's a movie that was posing as an anti-authoritarian kind of film, but in the safest way possible. Like, it, there was nothing really daring about it. Um, and the opening sequence has a couple of characters trying to battle it out over one another. And, and one of them is trying to, to create an intrusion into a system. The other one detects it and then shuts everything down. So, Shannon, typically when you're talking about things like uh, a, a hacker intruding into a system, detecting that there's been an intrusion. 
we're not normally seeing this happen on a uh, one versus one kind of basis in real time, typically, are we? Not necessarily. A lot of times what you'll see with a hack intrusion into a system, like you said, uh, is that they will sit and watch and they will do a lot of recon. So they'll try to figure out um, what's available for them, what can they see, and they'll wait for something to happen that'll give them even more access. Uh, and then if you have somebody that's working inside of that company that's being intruded upon, uh, usually the first action that you will see is them trying to also collect information so they can find where this open opening is, where this vulnerability is, and then they'll shut it down. Uh, and then after that, they'll do a whole, uh, whole research report on it and try to figure out like who actually did it and probably mm. take to enforcement agencies so that they can get the capture the person and hopefully get them charged. Uh, because that's not a very good thing to do. Yeah, but I mean, you don't necessarily see people like duking it out like they do with <laughs> hackers. Yeah, it, it's usually the you know, like your first indication that something is wrong can often just be that you notice there's unusual amounts of data traffic across your network. And right. You you might say, well, why why are we getting these spikes? If you're a a, a savvy hacker, you're trying to mask your activity. You're kind of like trying to sneak in when a big crowd is going into a room. It's kind of the same thing, right? Like you're waiting for uh, large transfers of data so that it masks what you are doing in a lot of cases. If you're really, really good at what you're doing, you're trying to kind of go in that route because it means you can stay hidden for longer and get more information. Information is valuable. Therefore, you don't want to just, you know, you don't want to just break into a system and then immediately get booted out, then what was the point of that? Other than to say, hey, I figured out you have a vulnerability. And if that's your job, that's awesome. If you're a white hat hacker and your job is to, hey, we've got this system, we think it's pretty secure, but we would like you to really put it to the test. And if you find any vulnerabilities, let us know, and then we can go and we can address that and fix them so that the bad guys don't have a chance to do it later. That's a legitimate job. But yes. but in the movies, that's not what you see. You see a person going like, I've got access. And then almost immediately, everything has uh, gone pear-shaped, right? Like there's alarms going off. And that's just not how it works. Not if you're doing it correctly anyway. Uh, exactly. Yeah. So th- these these movies, I mean, I, I appreciate it. Again, tried to create dramatic tension, but not terribly accurate. Uh, One thing that I did like about hackers is the fact that he he uses social engineering to first gain access to this network, yes, uh, which is something that's very very common with um, hackers in general, because humans are the first uh, the first failure in any network. They're the people. They're the ones that you can generally go to and find some kind of vulnerability because because people inherently trust each other. And that's just a thing that humans need to understand is if somebody is asking you questions that you shouldn't necessarily give out, don't give them out because they might be social engineering you into giving out those answers. Uh, Hackers also does a good job of pinpointing people towards real life hacker culture. For example, there is one scene in Hackers where they read off the hacker manifesto 
which was originally found in a hacker magazine, which you can only find if you were a part of that culture. And then later on in the movie, they also show a real-life booklet, a documentation book that shows that was actually used by um, uh, by phone operations to you know put up new towers and things like that back in the 1980s and 90s. Mm-hmm. So it has these real-life parts of culture, but in reality, the movie still has that terrible Hollywood hacking uh, parts of it as well. Yeah, I- I'm glad you brought up the social engineering. I'm actually going to do an episode about specifically about social engineering. Uh, live at Dragon Con with our, oh, our, cool. our mutual friend Brian Brushwood. Um, so uh, Brushwood's going to come on the show. There's no one like a magician to tell you how to fool people, right? How to how to lie to people and get them to do the things you want them to do. So we're gonna oh, yes. we're gonna go into social engineering big time on that episode. And I'm also glad you mentioned the things like the the manuals. That definitely is a big part of hacker culture, going all the way back to those phone freak days, where again the hackers were not necessarily trying to take advantage of a system. They just wanted to know how it worked. They were fascinated by the the way it actually performed. And so when you got a manual, suddenly you had the uh, uh, an insight into it, even if the manual didn't go into deep detail about how the system as a whole operates on the back end, it could give you enough insight. And then they start understanding like, oh, wow, that's really cool that they have this system set up in such a way where they can route calls like this and they can dynamically change things over. And uh, I'm glad you brought that up because once again, being a hacker doesn't necessarily mean you're a terrible person at all. It may mean that you just have a deep curiosity that is only satisfied by learning how this stuff works. And it's not always easy to do. Uh, that information right. is not always publicly available at all times. There have been times where it accidentally got publicly available. That's, uh, <laughs> again, going back to the phone freaks. There were some phone manuals that kind of were released to the public, not intentionally. It also wasn't considered to be a huge problem until the phone freakers got hold of it and suddenly you had all these people making weird calls long distance <laughs> all over the place. Uh, so funny. Yeah. Our next one is, a, is another case of people just throwing out terms without really having any meaning to them. I mean, the terms themselves have meaning, but not in the context of the lines. And it was from a CSI New York episode in which a character says, and this is a quote, I'll create a GUI interface using Visual Basic. See if I can track an IP address. Okay. So, uh, <laughs> so Shannon, uh, you want to track an IP address. Do you go to the trouble of developing a graphical user interface? Uh, no. What I would do is open up probably Netcat in my terminals so that I can gain access and see what the heck's going on on that IP address. Yeah. Or I would, if it was wireless uh, and I was on a nearby network, I would I would probably use Wireshark and Wi-Fi Pineapple. Like, it's, it's not... You don't have to create an entirely new graphical user interface to be, able, to be able to access an IP address and see what kind of traffic is happening to and from them. Yeah, it, it doesn't... Creating a graphical user interface literally makes no sense. I mean, no. it, it has nothing to do with your ability to track an IP address, to identify an IP address. 
It has nothing to do with it. Graphical user interface is an interface. It itself isn't a thing that performs these functions. It's just a way to visualize data and allow you to inter- interact with it in some way. So Windows is a graphical user interface. It's a GUI. Any any program that has a graphical representation of information that allows you to move things around, that's a GUI. has nothing to do with the actual function. It is separate from the function. It is just a way of uh, manifesting what that data actually means. Now, you might go through the trouble of creating some sort of visual data if you wanted to explain it to someone else who wouldn't understand if you just handed them lines of, of code or whatever. But that's not what that, – that, that doesn't even work in this case because we're talking about an IP address. An IP address, you don't need like a pie chart or, you know, you don't need a graphical representation of what an IP address is. It's an IP address. Exactly. Yeah, this one, this one kind of broke my brain for about 20 minutes when I, when I watched it. Uh, the next one I had on the list was another uh, example of of hackers battling it out in real time and seeing who could type the fastest. This happens all the time. There was also an episode of Chuck that did this where uh, the, the best part of that episode of Chuck was that the guy that Chuck was facing against was played by Freddie Wong and his character was named Freddie. So I, I was like, oh, my gosh, it's Freddie Wong, a YouTube oh, star so done funny. good. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's fantastic. It's I think it's uh, it's. I can't remember. It's like Chuck versus the hackathon or something like that. It's along those lines. And Freddie Wong plays the elite hacker that he goes up against. Uh, but in this case, I'm talking about Criminal Minds, uh, which has Nicholas Brendan in it, who I will always and forever think of as Xander from Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Uh, oh, he's so good. Yep. And he's brought in to, uh, to try and access a, a, another, uh, I think a, another employee's system, but the employee's kind of, on the lamb, uh, and she's working with other folks who are trying to do this quietly without the, the rest of the organization taking any notice of them. And, uh, and so he ends up getting into her system and trying to snoop around a bit. She notices, and then they have this duel. And as Shannon has already said, this is not really how we see things play out, but it does have the best line, I think, out of all the examples we have here, which is her gooey is mind blowing. <laughs> and uh, what you would actually see a hacker say is, "Whoa, check out this code!" Yeah, yeah. Instead of all these little uh, these little windows pop up. Also, it's funny because in this sequence, as they're typing, uh, there's like one point where the the Xander, I'll always call him Xander, is saying, "Well, here, see what you think about this." And all that you see on the screen is that one of the windows on the screen is dragged down to like the lower right corner. Yes. And you're like, wow, you have a mouse. <laughs> so bad. But they're, they, they're actually not even using computer mice. They're just typing on the keyboard. And, and so really all you're seeing are all these little windows being dragged around the screen and, and no real way of doing that easily. If you're just, if you're using a keyboard, you're making it too hard on yourself, honestly. <laughs> uh, One thing is about hackers that I have noticed. Um, I, I am not as good as a lot of my friends are, but keyboard shortcuts are huge yes. in the hacker culture. Huge. Well, yeah. I mean, especially if you're doing the same sort of code over and over, if you're going to be using the same sort of th- uh, strings repeatedly, having like various uh, shortcuts and macros set up saves you so much time. Uh, it, it's way more efficient and, you know, 
I, I totally get that. I've worked on documents where that sort of thing made a lot of sense, and I don't even do coding, right? I, I'm doing. I'm talking about working mostly in the legal world. I don't like to talk about it. That, <laughs> right. was, that was a long time ago, and I really like to leave that chapter behind. Uh, I, w- I was working for lawyers. I wasn't being pursued by them. Um, <laughs> another great example, Weird Science. This one sh- this one sort of gets a pass from me, too, because it's such a goofy movie. It's uh, uh, it's one of those films from the 80s where you, you kind of the, – the, pr- the basic premise is kind of squicky. Well, more than kind of squicky because you've got two – uh, high school males who decide to try and create a girl so that they can uh, do various uh, sexual things with her, which is pretty awful. Uh, but it turns out that she ends up having a way more intelligence than either of them and a lot more agency than either of them. So it's okay because uh, <laughs> it could have gone way worse than that. I know because I've watched a movie recently that took the other path and it was terrible. <laughs> I was for a different podcast. Uh, so... This one also has another depiction of characters trying to navigate through a three-dimensional virtual environment in order to access uh, a secure system. In this case, they're trying to create a simulated brain for their their created female, but the computer that Wyatt has is only capable of getting her intelligence up to fifth grade level, and they need more than that. So they tap into some... As far as I can tell, unidentified government agency to get more computing power, which in this film is equated to electricity, I guess. Because <laughs> if you watch the sequence, when they get access to the, the computers, everything at the government center is going crazy. You're seeing these reel-to-reel tapes that are spinning super, super fast. Uh, you see lights flashing. And then a power surge ends up blasting all of the electronics at Wyatt's home, like the microwave and there's like a uh, a smoke detector, I think, that explodes. And so that's what zooms in enough power to not only boost the intelligence of the character up to uh, superhuman levels, but also somehow magically brings to life this woman. Um, I'd say 97% accurate. <laughs> <laughs> Let's take a quick break to thank our sponsor. Are you hiring? Do you know where to post your job to find the best candidates? Posting your job in one place isn't enough to find quality candidates. If you want to find the perfect hire, you need to post your job on all the top job sites, and now you can. With ZipRecruiter.com, you can post your job to 100-plus job sites, including social media networks like Facebook and Twitter, all with a single click. Find candidates in any city or industry nationwide. Just post once and watch your qualified candidates roll in to ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use interface. There's no juggling emails or calls to your office. You can quickly screen candidates, rate them, and hire the right person fast. Find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by over one million businesses. And right now... Listeners of Tech Stuff can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free by going to ZipRecruiter.com slash first. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash first, F-I-R-S-T. One more time. Try it for free. Go to ZipRecruiter.com slash first. So 
this is a great example. The Weird Science uh, series or segment is a great example of uh, what you can actually do with more computing power. So in the real life, we have quantum computing, which people are currently working on to be able to de- decrypt encryption that is not currently uh, vulnerable. But that requires more computing power. That's what quantum computing is all about, not necessarily more electricity. Right. Yeah, uh, quantum computing, you know, using qubits where you have quantum bits that represent not just a zero, not just a one, but both and technically all values in between mean that you can complete calculations in parallel. And this is great for certain types of computing problems where you can have those parallel computing problems that are easily solved this way. Other computing problems are not parallel. And in those cases, a quantum computer is not necessarily going to be any better than a classical computer. In fact, it may be worse depending upon how many qubits the quantum computer has. If it has enough, then it'll chug along. Uh, but for those parallel problems, including encryption, quantum computers will transform our world. The encryption that we rely upon today will be trivial if you have a significantly powerful quantum computer because it will be able to go through all the possible answers that are the basis for your encryption. Typically, we're talking about um, you know very large hashed numbers and assign probabilities to them and figure out things like your encryption keys very, very quickly. So that is interesting, but as you say... Not just by – it's not something that's done by pumping more electricity through a, a power line. Exactly. That would be a little little simplistic. Uh, our next example is, of course, the most famous one in my mind. It's the one that I spent an episode ranting about previously on Tech Stuff, so I won't go into too much detail. It is Independence Day. It's a kick-butt yes, bu- kick so movie. Yeah, I, I, I got to tell you. If an alien a race ever attacks us, I I want Jeff Goldblum to develop the computer virus that we're going to put on their on their ship so that they can't attack us. <laughs> so this is a great example because he was without any prior knowledge, he was able to get a computer virus from his Mac laptop onto an alien spacecraft and be able to basically take him over and shut him down. Yeah. So there's so many things wrong with this. Uh, one, one, we cannot be certain that any alien, intelligent alien civilization out there uses com- computers that remotely resemble the way our computers work. That's problem one. Problem two, uh, we can't be certain that a virus that we would create for Earth-based computers would ever be transferable onto an alien craft. Problem three, we don't even know how we would do that, right? Like, it's... Do they have universal serial ports or something? What's how how do you get your stuff, your your program into alien technology? Uh, even if it's wireless, the wireless protocols, those are things. We don't just have computers sh- shooting off random radio waves. <laughs> they have to follow very specific rules for computers to communicate with each other. Everything about this is wrong. And given the premise of this movie, I highly doubt that their alien technology would even remotely compare to ours. 
um, I'm sure that they would be much, much stronger and much more, <laughs> much more advanced than our own. <laughs> yeah. And some of the arguments are that, oh, but see, the whole point of the movie is that the United States took technology from the aliens and used that to boost our own technology so that we would advance faster. And my thought to that is how that Considering that all the technology that we rely upon today is based off of very, very, very well documented advances in engineering, none of which are so dramatic as to say, oh, that's when the aliens arrived. This is so great. Yeah. I love that one. <laughs> now, I, I included this next one just for you, Shannon, because uh, I know that you are a lover of Japanese culture. And so I found a great anime scene uh, from Tengen Tapa Gurren Lagan Gurren Hen. <laughs> and uh, it involves a character going into a virtual world as a virtual avatar, runs through a maze, as we've seen before, finds a lockbox that apparently has the data he wants to get at, takes out a green glowing key, puts it in the lockbox, tries to unlock it, doesn't work, so what does he do? His virtual avatar headbutts the box repeatedly till it <laughs> breaks open. He grabs hold of a red sphere, which represents the data he wants, and then his character eats the data, and that's how they analyze it. And boy, do I wish <laughs> that's the way it worked. <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. I just, I hope that it tasted good. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it is a virtual character, so I guess you could technically assume it tastes in any way you like it to taste. Uh, I watched this and I thought, well, this is delightful. <laughs> it is, it is, but it's it's also, again, not trying to play this as this is how real hackers are. This is a, obviously a fantasy sci-fi world uh, that we're looking at. But one of the most entertaining versions of that meme that I've ever seen. I just love it. And like just watching that scene makes me want to watch the entire uh, anime because it's just so ridiculous. That's, yeah. Yeah. It's not how hacking works. It's like somebody trying to brute force, but their implementation of brute forcing is headbutts. Yeah, li- literal brute force. Like not <laughs> not putting password after password attempt through a a password uh, manager. Nothing like that. It's literally attacking a virtual box with a virtual headbutt. Uh, it's so wonderful. Good. Uh, the last little bit I have on here. This one this one doesn't really count because it was done on purpose. But there was a segment on The Late Show with Stephen Colbert who had Michael Ian Black on. Michael Ian Black who uh, was in uh, The State and tons of other stuff. And Michael Ian Black explained that he had dramatic acting chops that he felt he never got a chance to really exercise. He's known as a comedic actor and that he always wanted – his dream role is that of a hacker on a – police procedural show because it meant that he could dress in nice clothes, sit down behind a desk and everything he would do would seem really important. He says, it's a dream job. (laughs) And so then they, they do a segment where Stephen Colbert's show gets hacked and Michael Ian Black comes back out to fight off against the hack. It is uh, a send up of all the tropes we've been mentioning so far in this episode. And if you have not seen it, I recommend going out and watching it because it's hilarious. Uh, my favorite part is the fact that he, he comes out with black lipstick on yes. and these like biker gloves, which first off would be incredibly hard to type in. Yep. 
wearing those gloves. And second off, like the hackers I know do not wear black lipstick, especially if they are male. <laughs> yeah, he the first the one of the first things he, he says is talking about how he's going to be typing, and that his typing will in no way be uh, uh, hampered by the fact he's wearing fingerless biker gloves. So he's actually <laughs> he actually brings attention to that. And there is a so funny, funny there's a funny moment. He's bent over Stephen Colbert's desk and he's typing furiously, not really typing. He's just slapping at the keyboard furiously. And then it becomes clear that his lines are on the screen and he, <laughs> and he scrolled past them. And so he's like, I'm trying to find my line. <laughs> oh, that's so funny. So there's the, but it's great because they just roll with it. They, I mean, they just keep on going. So, uh, it's fantastic to see that kind of self-aware, um, uh, take on the way hackers and hacking culture has been portrayed in the popular media. There are, you know, we've, we've harped on a lot of different shows and movies about being terrible or being, uh, uh, inaccurate, but there are some examples out there that are trying really hard to be, uh, respectful and realistic when it comes to hacker culture. Uh, one of the ones that leaps to mind is Mr. Robot, uh, yes. a, a series where Hacking plays a very important part. Uh, it's not like it's all about hacking, but that's an important plot device in several episodes. Uh, and they, they name real security firms. They, they name real, uh, penetration teams that actually go and do this sort of testing. They name real software, uh, packages that are meant to either, uh, help someone commit one of these attacks or defend against them. They use real products. They're not so it's clear the people who are working on the show do their research. Yes, it's very clear. And in fact, I, I have a very close working relationship with the team over at Mr. Robot uh, to make sure that they get our products right because they have shown um, very recently one of Hack 5's products called the USB Rubber Ducky. They have a team over there that that includes somebody who used to work for the FBI. So they have actual people who have worked with security and with privacy, and they have a general understanding, but they still like to talk to real-life hackers to make sure that everything that they show on the show is legit and is an actual hack. Um, Mr. Robot is such a great example because it gives a perfect uh, real-life scenario where you have people that are fighting back, you have people that are fighting back against, you know, the big corpse and trying to do something that's right for the little guy, um, which you do see a lot in real-life hacking cases. Uh, a lot of times people will go after large corporations because they don't necessarily agree with their tactics or they don't agree with how much they're paying their employers or something like that. Um, so I just, I love watching Mr. Robot because it gives me the chance to look at it and be like, like oh, what they're showing right now is a real, it's a real hack. Like they're actually showing this to a huge fan base of people who wouldn't necessarily be, uh, uh, interested in this kind of stuff unless they were watching a show. So I, I just love that they're bringing so, such a huge fan base into what we do on a day to day basis. And I like that not only are they taking these steps to make sure that the stuff they portray is accurate, uh, but they're even going so far as certain aspects that we do see reflected in the news. You were mentioning this, Shannon, things like someone being on the inside of a company and for one reason or another, they decide to aid someone who wants to access 
that company's information, and they're doing so knowingly. It's not that they've been tricked into it. Uh, we see this where we have there, there are hackers who one of the the best things, one of the best tools you can have is making friends with someone who's works for the company that you want to try and and uh, access, like you want to get into their system. And if it's someone who's disgruntled for whatever reason, maybe they were looked over for a promotion, maybe they don't like what the company is doing, maybe that what the company's purpose is conflicts with their own ethical code, they might feel like helping someone out is the right choice. Um, and even if they themselves are not the ones doing the programming or whatever when it comes to it, they might be the ones who allow the access in the first place. We do see that in real life. And there are some times where we have to ask the question, like, was this someone from the inside or was this someone who attacked uh, from an external site? Uh, the, again, going back to Sony, there was, there's still a lot of argument about who ultimately was responsible for that. At the time, the two big arguments that were coming out was that it was either someone in North Korea who had done this or someone who was in the pay of North Korea, like a, a, right. a state agent, in other words, or it was someone who used to work for Sony or was currently working for Sony and they did not like something that happened. And so as a result, ended up stealing a ton of information and dumping it online for public review. Uh, and then the, the North Korea part just became a great smokescreen for that person. Uh, right. I, I saw that a lot of security experts, at least at the time, felt more inclined to believe it was the second possibility, that it was someone from the inside and not necessarily a state-sponsored attack. Uh, I don't know if that opinion ultimately changed. I've honestly lost track of the Sony story at this point because it kind of died down after that initial um, uh, flare of, of controversy around all the different elements. Yeah, the interesting thing that I found about that is um, a lot of the friends that I have in hacker culture um, just move on because there are so many different hacks that you see in our day and age that they, they don't have time to go back and discuss the Sony hack. Mm -hmm. uh, and disclaimer, I did do a bunch of videos for Signal by Sony, which was a different um, different core Com company inside of Sony that was doing these shows that uh, I was working with. It wasn't the entertainment one that got hacked, but, yeah. but um, I definitely went to them when I got that job, and I was like, you, sh you sure you want to hire me? Because um, that thing <laughs> happened to you guys, and I'm kind of a hacker, so... Yeah. <laughs> you okay <Awkward>. with that? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so... I'm, I'm pleased that Mr. Robot is out there. Uh, you were mentioning before we went on... on uh, the recording before we started recording that uh, that Silicon Valley also typically does a pretty good job of d portraying hacking in a in a realistic way. They do. Uh, so Silicon Valley actually hired one of my friends, Rob Fuller, who you can see in the credits of several of their episodes, uh, to give them a good overview, a good synopsis of what they should be showing on their show and what would be fake, what would be called out. Uh, so he helped, and he's actually a penetration tester. He does this as his day job, and he's been doing it for you know a couple of decades, I believe. Uh, so he was the perfect person for them to go to 
to say, you know, is, is this right? Is this correct? Uh, can you, can you actually build a script for us to show on, on camera, uh, so that we don't get called out by our fan base? A lot of which is going to be those Silicon Valley, you know, gurus that actually do coding on a day, day in, day out basis. Uh, so Mr. Robot and Silicon Valley both have hired on, um, several people who have worked in security and penetration testing, information technology, things of that nature, so that they can get it right on camera. And I think that's very important because, uh, what we're finding in this, in this genre, in this career, career path is that where there's a lot of people who lose interest very, very quickly in it because it is hard, it is ever-changing, and it's complicated. Uh, and you have to go to school for it, and you have to get certificates uh, that increase your knowledge, and you have to renew those certificates day in and day out every year. So it's expensive to stay in this career, too. Hopefully you get a company or get a job with a company that, you know, will pay for those certificates for you. Yeah, yeah. So, the fact that they're showing these real life scenarios on camera, uh, I'm hoping that it will increase more interest in this, in this genre of work because we really need more people to be interested in, in it in, in the long term because it is so, so important for companies as a whole, especially if they're holding user data to be secure and to be private and to be very conscious of what they're doing behind the scenes as opposed to just making a website pretty. Uh, the things that are most important to me are security and privacy. And it's, it's very important to me that more and more companies get involved with this information and get a, a much broader understanding of how important it is to actually pay money to make sure that you have good security. And, uh, to that end, I mean, there's a, um, there's a movie that's coming out later on this year, I believe, called IT. It's got Pierce Brosnan in it. Uh, and in that film, there's, uh, this idea of privacy and security plays a huge part of it, as well as the Internet of Things, which, again, is a great illustration of why security is so important. We have more and more devices that are are opening up opportunities uh, to be a point of entry for a hacker. Right. Like if you have not right. if you haven't designed your IOT device to also be secure and encrypted, that's a potential in depending upon how it how it communicates with the rest of your devices. Uh, so this movie IT that's coming out, there's a, a Pierce Brosnan's playing like a, a, a Tony Stark-like business guy who ends up having a an IT guy come in and help him out when he's giving a presentation and the 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 technology is failing. The IT guy gets it turned around and so Pierce Brosnan says, "Hey, come back to my house. Uh, I'd like you to help me out with some stuff." And the guy's like, "Okay, sure." And he comes by and the guy's house has got all this high-tech equipment, most of which is not really working up to the possibility that it could, but he also has a young uh like a teenage daughter that the IT guy ends up becoming fixated with. So then it becomes a psychological thriller where the <laughs> IT guy who was upgrading all the systems is really using them to spy on people and to when he when he's rebuffed, he uses them to terrorize people. So it becomes kind of a psychological thriller slash horror movie that's IT based uh, and Internet of Things based. And while that is going to be pushed to the limit for drama for dramatic purposes, there's a lot there that you could say, like, you know, um, yeah, it went to extremes for the purposes of this movie, but it does 
drive home certain things you should be aware of, like how many devices do you own that have microphones in them? How many do you own that have cameras in them? What exactly. uh, what are they connected to, and is it secure? Is your router secure? Did you, by any chance, not change the the default identifier and password to your router? Because you might want to do that, that kind of stuff. So uh, I, I am so grateful that I I got into this early. So like before Internet of Things became a thing, because now I can go home like right at this minute, pull up a program on my computer, sit down on the same network as my as my camera and make sure that it's not open to the World Wide Web, because it's it's entirely possible that those things can happen. They have happened. Mm-hmm. And it's oh, man, consumers just. I wish more consumers were interested in this kind of thing because it would make them so much safer. Yeah, yeah. It's the sort of stuff no one wants to really think about. They, the convenience of the technology is so great that it people don't feel comfortable thinking about the other side of it because the technology, they rely so heavily on it. It does so many useful things for them that I think that ends up making them kind of ignore the possible security problems because if they paid attention to it, they would feel that they would either need to take a lot of effort to fix those security issues, at least the the ones they can fix from a consumer side of things, or they would have to abandon the technology, which is so incredibly useful and convenient, and neither of those seem particularly interesting. It's way better to just, you know, just pretend like it doesn't happen and keep using your unsecured Wi-Fi and... <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, there, I've made some sacrifices in my life to be more secure. For example, I don't use Facebook Messenger on my phone yeah. because I don't, I don't trust that feature. I don't even use the Facebook app on my phone because I don't trust the app. Yeah. And I, I noticed that when I, when I abandoned the Facebook app, you gave me a big thumbs up on that day. Oh, yes, I did. <laughs> and there's other things that I, I've chosen convenience over security, even though I understand, uh, what, what I might, what might happen to me if I, because I chose that convenience. Yeah. Uh, for example, I use a thumbprint to unlock my phone, even though you are basically forced to give away a thumbprint if you are ever, um, if there is a warrant on your phone, as opposed to if you have a pin code or a password, you don't have to give those away. Right. So that's like those kind of things you really have to think about, especially if, you know, you're going into this with the with the thought, you know, I have to better my security and privacy. Yeah. And and see, it, it's different for you, too, Shannon, because you are you are aware of all the potential or at least a, a large majority of the potential bad things that could happen. So you can make an informed decision and you can right. you can measure that risk versus the reward you get uh, based upon whatever choice you make. A lot of people out there, they aren't. I think the problem is so scary, they don't even want to look at it. And that's, oh, yes. the, and that means that they're making uninformed, uneducated decisions. And I know that, I know the problem is scary, guys, but that's why you gotta look at it. You, you can't. <laughs> that's why we're here, so that we can inform everybody and we can educate everyone right. on, on the proper uses of security and privacy. So if, if you guys out there take anything at all away from this episode, I want you to take a well really there's two things I want you to take away. One is really give it some serious thought if you haven't before because it's it's something that could save you tons of heartache down the line 
and it can protect you and those who are close to you from attacks. And the second thing I want you to remember is if aliens attack, get Jeff Goldblum a Mac because that guy can do anything. (laughs) So, Shannon, thank you so much for joining this episode. Tell everyone where they can find your work. Sure. So you can find me on Twitter. I'm at snubs, S-N-U-B-S. And I promise I will not snubs you unless you're mean to me. Uh, and you can also find me on Hack5 and Tech Thing, uh, both of which are over at hak5.org. And we talk about the simplest of simple hacks, and we go all the way up to the hardest of the hardest hacks. So there's something there for everybody, and I hope that you guys will enjoy it. Awesome. Shannon, thank you so much. And guys, if you want to get in touch with me and talk about some of the stuff we chatted about on this episode, maybe there's a television or film uh, that you know we didn't touch that you think absolutely needs to be on this list. Let me know if you have a suggestion for anything else, like whether uh, you know maybe it's another guest I could have on the show. Let me know. The address is techstuff at howstuffworks.com or drop me a line on Facebook or Twitter. The handle at both of those is techstuffhsw, and I will talk to you guys again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 